The time is now. Hi, everybody. This is Mike Schmidt, host of this Employment Law Now podcast. I am vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are at our six-month point of this podcast series. I really appreciate all of you listening and being a part of this. Uh, if there's somebody out there that you know that might be interested in employment law and keeping up to date with employment law issues, please, please, please let them know about this podcast. Also, if you've got a topic or an issue that you want to hear me talk about or hear someone from the outside address, please shoot me an email at mschmidt@cozen.com or go to our website at www.employmentlawnow.com and send a message, make a comment, and I'd be happy to address uh, whatever interests all of you. The common theme for today's podcast episode, this is Volume 1, Episode 13. Uh, the common theme is policy, specifically your company's policies. First off, take off your hat and then cut your hair. It's everywhere. Now listen, no cussing, no fussing, don't ever be late. I don't want to see you leaving only for that lunch break. You'll find out it's for your own good. Oh, well, listen up and I'll explain the company policy. What are they? How have you determined what your corporate policies are going to be when it comes to your employees? Have you given any thought to it? We throw around these terms that we hear all the time, employee handbooks, employee policies, company policies. How have you actually determined what the workplace rules are going to be in your workplace? Some people even do a cut and paste job when it comes to creating employee handbooks. There's a lot of law out there on this stuff, but there are also some aspects of this that is very unique to your particular industry and actually to your particular company. You really need to give some thought to the kinds of policies you have, what's workable, what's not workable, and above all, certainly, what's legal and what's not legal. So that's the common theme for today's episode. What is your company policy when it comes to employee conduct? And so I'm going to address uh, in our trending now and in a few noteworthy now segments, I'm going to address this issue of creating the most effective and certainly lawful company policies. So we start with our trending now segment, which I refer to as Politics in the Workplace 2.0. Regardless of the side of the political aisle you are on, and to be honest with you, this really isn't about politics to me, you can't deny that the workplace is much different than it was five to ten years ago. Some might even argue it's much different than it was a mere ten months ago. 
it's not just about whether the federal or the state legislatures or the federal and state agencies are Republican-controlled or Democrat-controlled or pro-this or pro-that. It is a changed workforce out there, too. Your workforce in your workplace has changed over the last few years. And again, it's not really a Democrat or a Republican thing. I'm not even suggesting that the change in the workforce is something that's good or bad. The reality is the workforce has changed. I think your employees have gotten smarter. They've gotten more vocal. Social media in 2017 has changed that. Your employees have far more access to information through social media than they ever had. Social media also allows them the ability to communicate collectively and to greater masses beyond their own jurisdictions more than they were able to do in the past. I also think that in years past, things were much more compartmentalized. People simply separated their lives more, their personal lives and their work lives. They didn't really bring their personal life and their personal feelings into the workplace and vice versa. I've spent a lot of time talking um, at presentations and certainly on this podcast about how politics has crept into the workplace. We've seen, because of the emotion and the issues that have been discussed, certainly since President Trump has taken office in January, but even during the campaign that preceded that inauguration, we've seen, for example, a significant rise in national origin and religion harassment claims in the workplace. Transgender issues in the workplace have been really significant. How employers are supposed to address that has been uh, somewhat of a, uh, of a topic lately. But there's another side to it as well, and this is what I refer to as politics in the workplace 2.0. It's when you're seeing your employees not engage in certain activity inside the workplace, but when you're seeing your employees engage on the outside in something that you as the employer, you as the boss may not particularly like. Charlottesville is just one example of that. The tragic uh, events um, in Charlottesville is probably the most recent example of this. What if your employee is at a rally that you deem to be or other people deem to be racist or homophobic? It's beyond just even making a racist or a homophobic comment. What if your employee is at one of these rallies? The issue here is whether you can take action as an employer because of this off-duty conduct. Let's assume for the moment that the employee is not on this rally during working time when he or she is supposed to be working, truly off-duty conduct. Well, like I say with so many things when it comes to taking adverse action because of statements or conduct that you might not like as an employer, it really is a slippery slope. I'm not here to tell you that in X situations you definitely can take adverse action against your employee or in Y situations you definitely cannot. What I do say to you all the time is you at least need to give it careful consideration. Don't be trigger happy. Give it the analysis that it requires. And then at the end of that analysis, you may come away saying, well, okay, I'm clear to take some sort of adverse action because I don't like the conduct. Or you come away from it saying, you know what, I really need to steer clear of this because of the particular law on this issue in my jurisdiction. Or you may even say, and I've seen this many times, it's a little bit of a tricky issue. There may be a legal problem with taking adverse action, but I'm going to make a business decision, and I am going to say for the good of my consumers, for the good of the safety in my workplace and my other colleagues, 
we're going to take adverse action, notwithstanding what legal liability we may have. But I at least want you to walk away from this understanding that you should at least engage in the analysis. The private sector, and for those of you in the private sector, there really is no constitutional aspect to this. Unlike in the public sector, constitutional rights to freedom of speech and certainly retaliation for engaging in uh, First Amendment or other constitutional um, activity uh, is not really an issue in the private sector. And when you are analyzing this issue, you really shouldn't focus on the political aspect of the activity. Why? Because engaging in political activity is, for the most part, mostly protected on virtually every state level. What you should focus on, however, when you're analyzing the situation where one of your employees is engaged in some activity off-premises and uh, off-working hours, some type of rally, focus on the content and the context of it. Now, if they are engaged in some sort of rally and their activity or their statements tend to be about the terms and conditions of your workplace, you may have an issue with that because, as we've talked about in the past, the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, allows employees to engage in, again, say it with me, protected concerted activity. So you need to be careful about taking adverse action when the content and or the context is protected concerted activity under the NLRA. But when you are dealing with something, a rally or some other activity where your individual employees are engaging in what would be deemed purely racist or homophobic um, or similar type of uh, statements or, or activities, well, then you might want to think about taking some sort of action. Could their uh, comments lead to issues? Have they led to issues in the workplace? For example, is it a manager of yours? Is it somebody in management who is espousing some sort of racist or homophobic content that you are afraid uh, will be taken into the workplace and create a harassment or a discrimination issue in your workplace? Again, the takeaway really is here and uh, we could spend a lot of time debating right and wrong, good and bad, and I'll leave that to the CNNs and the Fox News channels to do all of that. But what you really need to focus on as a takeaway is the reality here. The reality that politics are entering the workplace more than they ever did, and employees are engaging in political-related activity outside of the workplace more than they ever did. So you as employers need to figure out how to deal with that reality both effectively and lawfully. We turn now to our Noteworthy Now segment. So wait, what? Actually, the NLRB has just issued an employer-friendly decision? So here we come with In Re Macy's, a case involving Macy's. On August 14, 2017, the majority of the NLRB found that a company policy prohibiting the disclosure of information about customers that was obtained from Macy's confidential records did not, I repeat, did not violate the National Labor Relations Act. Again, wait, what? We are so used to hearing the NLRB coming down hard on employers and particularly on their handbook rules and policies. We're hearing a lot of and reading a lot of decisions 
which talk about this issue of what is confidential and what's not confidential. And the NLRB for the last few years, the Democratic-led NLRB for the last few years, has really deemed policies that just talk in general terms about confidential information to either violate on its face or have the potential to chill protected activity under the NLRA. We also do know as a standard rule that employees are allowed to appeal to your customers for their support in a labor dispute that the employees may be having with your company. But the NLRB said that this one was different. A policy prohibiting the disclosure of information about customers that was obtained from Macy's confidential records was okay. There was no chill of NLRA rights. Here, the bar, the, dis the, the, the disclosure bar, was referring to customer social security numbers and credit card numbers, neither of which the majority of the NLRB said is of any use to appealing to customers for support regarding a labor dispute. So in this particular policy, there wasn't just an outright bar on disclosing customer names or addresses, but here there were specific issues. There was an issue with disclosing confidential social security numbers and credit card numbers of customers, and the majority of this NLRB said that a policy prohibiting that kind of disclosure was okay. So here we are. We know that the NLRB is changing. We know that we're uh, going to have a majority of the NLRB now going forward, but we don't really know which of the Obama administration rules are going to be uh, thrown out, for lack of a better term. We don't know what the policy agenda and what the new decisions are really going to say going forward. So I would still suggest to all of you when you are talking about your social media policies and really your handbook policies in general, you still want to be specific with your prohibitions. If you are barring something, if you are prohibiting your employees from doing something, be specific in what you are prohibiting and make sure that the prohibition is narrowly tailored and that you can articulate some nexus to the prohibition and to some specific business interest of your company. Steer clear still of vague and overboard, overbroad words that have no definitions in your policy. Noteworthy now, the FMLA. Most of you who are covered by the FMLA certainly, I would hope by now, have policies dealing with the FMLA. And there's a real irony here when it comes to the FMLA. It's very simple in some respects that there is essentially just one basic obligation in the statute. That is, if you're a covered employer and your employee is protected under the FMLA, you've got to give a certain amount of unpaid leave. Yet, the irony is that despite what seems to be a very simple obligation under this statute, it is incredibly complex in its application given the myriad of terms of art and the potential procedural trip-ups that employers can suffer if they're not careful. Not everybody knows this, I think, um, but the FMLA has its substantive obligation, but there also is a second prohibition in the statute, and that is a prohibition against retaliation for an employee exercising his or her rights under the FMLA. And in this particular noteworthy case, the issue is about what standard of proof has to be shown for that causation link to show that the employer took some action in retaliation for the employee engaging in his or her FMLA rights. 
do you need to show a but-for standard? In other words, that but-for retaliation, the employer would not have taken this action? Said a little differently, the but-for standard is really requiring you to show that that was the reason, that a retaliatory motive was, in fact, the reason for the employer taking the action. Or, on the other hand, do you need to show a less burdensome standard, which is the motivating factor or the mixed motive standard, where the employee doesn't have to show that that was the only reason, that the retaliatory motive was the reason for the action, but that it was just a factor. It was one of many factors, perhaps, that motivated the employer to take this decision. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals found that the but-for factor is what had to be proved, yet the majority of courts out there found and have found that the less burdensome motivating factor is what needs to be shown. Well, just recently, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers New York, Connecticut, and Vermont, has joined the majority of the courts and has said that all you need to utilize is the less burdensome causation standard. For those of you keeping track at home, the name of the case is Woods versus Start Treatment and Recovery Centers. There, the company terminated the employee for continued performance deficiencies. That's not a real novel thing. While the plaintiff in the case claimed that the company inappropriately denied FMLA leave and terminated him for attempts to exercise rights under the FMLA. The Second Circuit again decided all that needs to be shown to prove causation is the less burdensome standard that the retaliatory animus was simply a motivating factor. One factor that motivated the company, didn't have to be the only one, it was one factor that motivated the company to retaliate for the employee attempting to exercise rights under the FMLA. And so what's the outcome here? Um, what's the consequence of the outcome here? Well, it's very likely given the different rulings that we're now seeing from the federal courts of appeals, it's very likely that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to take up this issue at some point in the near future. But in the meantime, for the Second Circuit uh, employers and for those employers uh, within the jurisdictions of the majority of the courts that have similarly uh, adopted this less burdensome standard, it's now uh, easier perhaps to prove FMLA retaliation. Since again, all you need to show is that the exercise of the FMLA rights and a retaliatory motive for that exercise was one of the reasons for the employer taking adverse action. So one of the takeaways here, what you need to do, look at your forms, look at your policies, make sure they comply with the FMLA, make sure they are as up-to-date as possible, and beyond simply the piece of paper that your policies are contained on, make sure that your training, that your training of the managers and the people who are actually going to be implementing these FMLA policies and dealing with your employees on a day-to-day -day basis, make sure they understand what can and can't be done when it comes to the FMLA and potential retaliation. Next, noteworthy now. We're talking about maximum or automatic leave policies, and many of you have them out there, and I've seen them in a lot of company handbooks out there. For example, your policy says that if an employee is out for three days, he or she is automatically terminated. Or if you take 
X amount of leave without returning to the company, you are automatically terminated. Well, the EEOC just filed a lawsuit against UPS. And as I say all the time, when it comes to violating laws, both intentionally and even unintentionally, it's not just the smaller shops, the mom and pop shops, that uh, are the, the targets here. This stuff even happens to the big companies. The EEOC just filed a lawsuit against UPS on behalf of about 90 current and former employees, all of whom were alleging that the company violated the Americans with Disabilities Act because the company had a maximum leave policies where employees were automatically terminated after they've taken 12 months of leave. The case settled for a couple of million dollars, and UPS uh, apparently was required to change its policy as a result of the EEO's lawsuit. But again, this is something that should be on your radar. The key is that you need to engage in a unique case-by-case -case analysis when it comes to accommodations, when it comes to an employee needing leave. You cannot just have a blanket rule. And again, it's one of the biggest ironies in employment law that I find. You know, they talk about discrimination in employment laws and discrimination laws or anti-discrimination laws. And the premise there is, well, all you companies need to treat everyone equally, right? Yet when it comes to these kinds of laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act, where you're talking about some type of accommodation requirement, well, you can't treat everyone equally. You need to be treating them differently based on their own individual circumstances, based on their own condition and their own needs for accommodation. So that's the takeaway with this particular EEOC litigation against UPS. Make sure, again, that your policies are compliant with the law. Make sure the people you are training to deal with leave requests and accommodation requests and the interactive process are not just making blanket assumptions and enforcing blanket rules across the board when it comes to these issues. Make sure they are trained appropriately so that you are engaging in the appropriate process with your employees and you're more likely to minimize the exposure under these laws. Finally, we go to our Really Now segment, our Really Now segment, and, well, I could tell you, based on this story, that rights to privacy have now gone to a whole new level here. Cell phones, GPS, low jack in your cars, they got nothing on this, people. There is a Wisconsin company, and I don't know if uh, any of you have read this story. There is a Wisconsin tech company called Three Square Market that apparently started a voluntary program, and I am putting the word voluntary in air quotes, a voluntary program where employees can have microchips embedded under their skin between their thumb and their index finger. I'm going to say that again. A voluntary program where employees can have microchips embedded under their skin between their thumb and their index finger. Now, putting aside the voluntary nature of this, and we could certainly debate that for a long time, the company says that these microchips are not being used to track employees and, in fact, that there's no real GPS technology being used here, but that the purpose of it is really for employee convenience 
for those employees who can now swipe in and swipe out of the building more quickly, who can pay for things in the cafeteria more easily. Some employee groups have been up in arms uh, arguing of what the problems here are and what the problems here can be. What happens if you do, in fact, start to use GPS-like technology to be tracking your employees? You're finding out that they're going to a union meeting or they're taking bathroom breaks of certain lengths during the day. What if you're starting to take medical information and other wellness measurements from your employees? What about the risk of infection for where you've embedded this under the skin? What about those employees who have some religious objection to this particular conduct? Is this going to be something that becomes a trend? Companies embedding microchips into their employees? Really now? <laughs> well, that is it for today. Again, we have finished our first six months of this podcast series, and I can't be more excited about this. We've had some real great guests as well over the first six months. The NLRB's general counsel, Richard Griffin, the EEOC former general counsel, David Lopez. We've had other outside special guests talking about such issues as artificial intelligence, OSHA, immigration, initiatives in Washington. We've had some human resources professionals talk about what keeps them up at night, and we've certainly spent the better part of the last six months giving updates on the latest labor and employment cases and developments. I really hope you've been enjoying the series so far, and my commitment to you is to keep this fresh, keep this topical, and make this as a convenient a way as I can to have you get great labor and employment content. Again, I really appreciate you listening. Until the next time, enjoy the rest of your summer, and I hope all of your labor is productive. <laughs>